Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger He will prepare your way. A voice, one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the path. John the Baptist appears in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sin. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and honey. And what and this is what he proclaimed. One Mightier than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. The gospel of the Lord. broken up into two main parts, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And then, of course, is the introductory rites and the conclusion. Today, we are going to talk about the Liturgy of the Word, and a scripture passage that I like to start with is in Luke chapter 4. You hear that Jesus goes to the synagogue as is his practice, this is what's church every week. And they handed him the roll of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read from the scroll. And then he sat down, and all eyes were upon him, expecting him to speak, to teach. This really is the basis of our liturgy of the word. Our Jewish ancestors, right? The first Christians were all Jewish, regularly in the synagogue had a service of the liturgy of the word where the scriptures were read and then there was a homily and a teaching and then a concluding prayer. So you also know that Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple often, right? And celebrating the main feast, especially the Passover, and the feasts were celebrated with a sacrifice in the Passover, the Paschal Lamb. Jesus you know, becomes that Paschal Lamb. His sacrifice, the Last Supper, is the 
Passover foreshadowed by the first Passover prepared or predicted, if you will. This is the true Passover. And so at every Mass in the Liturgy of the Word, we have the Liturgy of the Synagogue and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, Jesus two weeks under. We have the Liturgy of the Temple. Our Jesus, another passage that I like to refer to when I talk about the Liturgy of the Word, the Liturgy of the Eucharist, is Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. I'm sure remember the story after on the day of the resurrection that two disciples are on their way out of town and somebody whom they do not recognize walks with them to his risen Lord, right? And they explain their lives. They pour out everything they're going through. And he responds by explaining to them the scriptures. Then they invite him to stay and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. We're not our hearts burning when we explain Scripture to them. We again see in this passage the two aspects of the Mass. The liturgy of the Word where Jesus truly explains the Scriptures to us. And then the liturgy of the Eucharist where He truly strikes the breaking of the bread. The way I like to look at it, Word. The Word of God is expressed in Scripture, right? A Word conveys ideas. Vision, direction, but also the Word became flesh, He's here in this Eucharist, and the Word dwells in our heart outside of our mind to give us strength and to help us know God's love and presence. And so every Mass has a meditative part and a contemplative part. In the liturgy of the Word, God speaks to us through words, through ideas, it gives us perspective of our lives. It gives us direction. And then in the Eucharist, God's presence truly gives us the strength to travel this week in the direction God spoke to us. It is a beautiful liturgy, if you will. The liturgy of the synagogue, the liturgy of the temple, the head and the heart. God's words speaking to us in our minds. God's presence, strengthening our will and our spirit. You say Scripture is inspired. What that truly means, I think it's sometimes misunderstood. Sometimes we think that means that God spoke to somebody the words and they simply dictated or wrote down the words God spoke. That is not what we mean by inspired. Inspired is the literal translation of God breathed. God works through our human instruments or authors. God inspired the scriptures, but it doesn't mean that the limited perspective or the ignorances or the sinfulnesses of the authors are necessarily taken away. God works through the human means to present His Word. And also, it means that we who read inspired scripture must also be inspired and receive it in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can correctly interpret it. And the church helps us with that. One of the best examples I like to say about the inspired scriptures, especially in the context of the Eucharist, is how many Gospels are in the Bible? I'm going to ask the fifth grader. Four 
Gospels in the Bible. Should I go further and ask what are their names? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, do you guys know? Here's a tough question. How many uh, Gospels really exist? You know there's more than four? Did you know that? There is. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. All these Gospels, I've read the Gospel of Thomas. You're not missing anything. <laughs> but the reason why we say these four Gospels are inspired, they're the ones in the Scriptures that have been handed down, is because when they were proclaimed in the liturgy, people recognized the risen Lord speaking through them, and their hearts were burning, and they shared that with one another, and the Lord is truly present when we proclaim the Scriptures. Says that there's two tables that Eric up here in the Mass the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so, the ones that are inspired are the ones to whom God continues to reveal Himself and work His will through throughout the ages. So, more the structure of the liturgy of the Word. You know that there's four readings there's an Old Testament reading, and then a psalm, a responsorial psalm. Then a New Testament reading that comes from one of the letters, and then the Gospel, and then the homily. The Gospels are the most important. They have preeminence, if that's a good word. That's why we stand. That's why we have a Gospel procession. That's why the choir sings Hallelujah, which is Hebrew for Praise the Lord. This is the highlight of the Liturgy of the Word. And you may know that the Gospels that we read every Sunday are already prescribed by the lectionary of the church. Some churches, the pastor picks Gospels to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Sometimes that's tempting, but to have the Gospels laid out allows us to do the following. Every year we go through the entire life of Christ. And it lines up with the liturgical year. Do you know how to remember the liturgical year? There's two great seasons. Christmas and Easter. And it's so great, we've got to have a season for Easter. Season of Christmas, season of Christmas, uh, Easter. And then they're still so great, we've got to have a season to prepare for Easter. Month. Season of Advent and the season of Lent. And then outside of that, there's ordinary time. And so the Gospels that we pick in Advent, and Christmas are the beginning when God prepared the way for Christ. Like today's reading, John the Baptist. At Christmas, we'll read about the birth. And then at Lent and Easter, we're going to read about Pentecost and Desert, the coming back to the Lord. And also, Holy Thursday, the entrance into Jerusalem, Good Friday, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Then outside of these seasons, ordinary times, we go to the public ministry of Jesus from his baptism to his final entry into Jerusalem. That sets the stage for the rest of the reading. The first reading is from the Old Testament and is related to the theme of the Gospel. And this is the most important part of my little message today. The 
find ways to interpret all of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is to see it as a preparation and a prediction of Christ. This is key to our Christian belief. Luke chapter 24, I just mentioned the road to Emmaus. More specifically, what Jesus explained to those disciples is every part of Scripture that referred to Him. In Luke chapter 4 that I just referenced, when Jesus read from the Scripture Isaiah, He said, This passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christian belief is that all God did before Christ was planned to prepare us for Christ. For example, the year of the first covenant, right? The Exodus, the passage from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, to the Red Sea, to the desert. These all prepared us for the new covenant in Christ Jesus. The new Exodus, our slavery from sin to the promised land of heaven where God gives us new life as we travel through the Red Sea, which is like traveling through baptism. He gives us the law, which is really the Holy Spirit. He gives us the manna from the way through the desert, which is really the Eucharist. In our traveling through the desert, which is this life to the promised land. Other typologies, the word theologians use it for prefiguring. Mary, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Spirit overshadows her and she becomes the very vessel of Christ, just like in the Old Covenant, the temple contained the Ark of the Covenant, which had the manna in it. Or the prophets prophesied that Jesus would come to bring the fullness, God's salvation, God's final and most profound intervention in humanity. And the early church, the Acts of the Apostles especially, you'll hear the church and throughout the Gospels like you heard today, prophecies and fulfillment. Prophets from the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. Christianity is the only religion that was announced beforehand by God. And that's an important way to see the Old Testament and read the New Testament. All pertains to Christ. St. Jerome tells us that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Scripture is all important. So the Old Testament parallels the Gospel. Then we have the responsorial psalm. The responsorial psalm is in response to what we heard in the first reading. But the responsorial psalm is a little different. Oftentimes it's sung. It was sung in the temple. Psalms are the prayers of the Jewish people, more so, they are the very prayers that Jesus prayed, right? When Jesus was a little boy, his mother, father, taught him the Psalms in Hebrew. And he prayed them. And we hear him in his most desperate moment on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is praying the first line of Psalm, Psalm 22, I believe. So, when we pray the Psalms, we, the body of Christ, are speaking the same words that Christ spoke. It is still Christ's prayer continuing for all time and space, interceding for the world to the Father. And we sing it because it's joyful. 
but also there's a response. The other readings is one way, right? And it's not a complete relationship if one person's doing all the talking. Any couples out there can testify to that? I don't know. And so what you have is God wants a dialogue with his people. God gives and God receives because love requires giving and receiving. And so when we respond to the lecture in the Psalms, it's like a dance of loving. Because ultimately, right, the Eucharist, like we learned last week, is the wedding feast of the Lamb is giving ourselves to Christ in the most intimate way, body, soul, and spirit, who gives himself to us in the Eucharist. And the liturgy of the Word and everything going on before is preparing us to stand up, Commit ourselves again to the Lord and then surrender as we receive Him and transform. And so it's a love dialogue. The New Testament letters oftentimes are different in theme, but not always. Sometimes they are the same. But the idea of the New Testament letters is that you know that they're really the first parts of the Old Testament. Especially, mostly, we hear from St. Paul. St. Paul went around and formed churches. And then when he heard through the grapevine, I guess, that there were problems in the church. Well, there's no problems in the church, is there? Or they needed encouragement. He would write letters and then send the letter by courier to the church, but they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have email. And so they would gather in the liturgy and read the letters from Paul. We still do that today. And those, although they were written for a church long ago, they oftentimes still have a message. So, that's the liturgy of the word, the four readings. It concludes with a homily. The homily, the priest, to the extent that he allows himself to be inspired, right, by his prayer, his openness to the Holy Spirit, does attempt to speak on behalf of Christ, and the purpose is to explain the readings and how they apply to our lives today. The priest is not supposed to teach catechism, like I'm doing right now. Or to expound upon the scriptures so that it is Christ still who will speak to us. And, like I said earlier, the scriptures are inspired. Hopefully the preaching is. But this is something that should not be overlooked. The listening is inspired. I can't tell you how many times that I've gone to the back of church and someone would say, Oh, Father, that really spoke to me when you said so-and-so. And then they tell me what they think I said, and I'm thinking, I never said that. It is true. You are baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and God speaks through the listening, even if it isn't what the priest said, or even if there's imperfections in what the priest said. And finally, we conclude with the creed. The creed that we use most often is called the Ninth. Nicaea is a council of the church. One of the first councils, one of the ecumenical councils in 325, called by the emperor. And the situation is pretty profound, right? Christianity just became legal in the Roman Empire around 312. Prior to that, it was underground. It wasn't unified. It was different in different areas. And so... I'm, I don't know, I wasn't back then, but you can imagine Constantine the Emperor, who for some political reasons wanted to use the religion to unify the empire, but I'm trusting and hoping that it's also for good reasons, said, 
you bishops got to get together and we got to decide really what is this faith. And so the early church worked out the dogma, the major statement of what the Christian belief is. Nicene Creed was worked out by the Council of Nicaea then, and it is a summary of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It goes to creation, the fall, redemption, resurrection of the body, second coming, the church, and the Holy Spirit. It covers it all, and it's authentic teaching of the magisterium of the church, the bishops in union with one another, who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, interpreting the Scripture, and continuing to articulate the revelation of the God. And so every Mass, we stand up after hearing the liturgy of the Word to reprocess our faith. In other words, at our baptism, which is one of the reasons why the Creed was early used, I mean, it's one of the uses of that baptism, we stand up and say publicly what it is we live for. We live for Christ in the world. And if this is like a wedding feast, Jesus the bridegroom, the church the bride, it's like reprocessing your marriage vow when you stand up and say, Honey, I love you. I give myself totally to you anew today. How many of you do that in your wedding vow? But that's what we're doing every Sunday Mass, is recommitting ourselves to Christ publicly so that then we can come forward in the Eucharist and consummate that concept vow that we have verbally stated. Their wedding vow, body, soul. Then we conclude with the prayer. Prayers of the faithful as our Jewish ancestors did in the liturgy of the synagogue. After hearing God's word for us, we're filled with God's love, wonder, and all. We have greater perspective once again, and we pray, exercise our priesthood to help bring about the kingdom. And we pray for the church and its advancement in the ministry. Pray for the world and the scripture. And God hears that prayer. In this church, especially, so many people testified that having their prayer and their names listed in the list of the scriptures profound impact. And so, today, that is the liturgy of the word. Next week, liturgy of the Eucharist, part one.